All right, friends, welcome back. Well, so much for plans. I had all kinds of plans to do in that five minute break, but my cat came in from the cold night and wanted some serious cuddling. <laughs> had a little bit of a purr fest with my cat, which was very fun. <laughs> Didn't help me in my preparation for the talk, but there you go. Or maybe it did, since I'm talking about nature and our love of nature, and here comes this wild, furry feline <laughs> from the dark and the cold. So it definitely kindled my heart, which is, I guess, one of the teachings I want to speak to tonight. He may make a star appearance. His name is Chesterfield. If you see a gray, big, fluffy thing walking across the screen, you'll know he's the other person giving the talk, <laughs> the other being. So, as many of you know, I am uh, a nature lover, as I'm sure many of you are, and spend a lot of my time in nature as much as I can, and um, live here in Marin County for that reason, because there's such a lot of access to beauty and wildness. Excuse the sound, that's my attack, my cat attacking the furniture. Um, and um, and one of the things I want to speak to tonight is one one dimension of experience that happens when we're outside, and it very much as so much of my exploration of my Dharma practice and nature and my teaching of uh, these practices outdoors. There's a beautiful integration between the natural world and our and our in a practice uh, and Buddhist teachings. And one of the beautiful teachings that the Buddha gave um, that I don't, I don't know historically if, if, if this was his particular teaching, as far as I know it was, sometimes he drew on the existing yogic tradition um, for certain teachings but his teaching about the heart and the qualities of the heart. We have this amazing human heart that has this uh, tremendous capacity to feel. You know, as a warm-blooded mammal, we have a very finely attuned, sensitive, warm heart that feels deeply and has tremendous capacity to love and to care and to feel joy and delight and rapture and peace and connection and intimacy and, and many of the dimensions. And of course, as you know, as the Buddha spoke to in many different ways, we have these innate qualities. Mindfulness is one, love is another. And we also have limitations, and, and we all have the potential to grow, to develop, to, to, to cultivate these innate qualities. So in the Loving-Kindness Sutta, the Buddha says, um, in wishing and gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. 
whatever living beings they are, whatever living beings there may be, innumerable as they may be, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. Radiating kindness over the entire world. So beautiful. If, you, if you're not familiar with the uh, Karaniya Metta Sutta, it's a beautiful, wonderful um, poem, really, on, on the loving heart. And like many of these teachings and, and principles and practices, they're very beautiful and, and profound and deep and rich. And, and they're also not necessarily where we live. Right? Divine abode, Brahma Vihara, is, is a place of abiding, which means our heart can abide in these domains of love and compassion and joy and ease. But raise your hand if this is where you abide all the time. <laughs> all right. Sometimes, of course, we can feel profound love, profound compassion, profound joy. And, you know, we can cultivate these qualities through many different things, through relationship, through parenting, through service, through meditation practice, through developing capacity for our own self-love and self-compassion. And I'm, what I'm going to speak to tonight, since it's one of my doorways, is to know, is to see how contact with nature and the natural world and that which is bigger than us, beyond us, the more than human world, how that can expand the heart how that can grow the capacity of love. So when the Buddha talks about radiating kindness to all beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, one of the nice things about going out into the natural world is that we start coming into contact with that vast variety of living beings. Right? When we're in our homes, right, it's just ourselves rattling around and maybe some family members and maybe a cat or a dog rattling around, but really very, very limited in terms of the range of, of life. And when we go outside, we're immediately uh, cognizant of a much vaster variety of life. And so when we think about radiating kindness over the entire world, the, I think the more in contact we are with different life forms, whether that be human or the more than human world, there's more to love, there's more to connect with, there's more to radiate to. And there's about eight or nine million species alive on this planet, different species, never mind the amount of beings in those species. And of course, as we know, many of those species are endangered or at risk of extinction, which can also very tenderly pull on the heart. And we can also think about expanding the sense of who do we, who are we radiating kindness to? You know, in, in the text it's considered sentient beings, but we're also expanding the idea of what's sentient. What is sentient? You know, from many indigenous cultures will say, well, there's a, you know, everything is alive. The rocks, the rivers have presence, have spirit, the trees, the plants, the stars. You know, we 
just beginning to sense how how intelligent plant life is, tree life is, how they communicate, how they have an awareness different than ours. And sadly, what's happening culturally is we're becoming an indoor species. We, the average American spends 95% of their time indoors, 95% of their time. And I imagine some people, many more than, more than that, we're becoming a screen-oriented species. And yet, as many of you know, those of you who've been to Spirit Rock, um, one of the reasons why Spirit Rock and most meditation centers, Buddhist centers, retreat centers, uh, there's a reason why they're in nature, right? They're going to be profoundly touching and supportive of practice, of the heart, of wisdom, of awareness, of kindness. Just, just wave if you've been to Spirit Rock, if, if you have been practicing on the land in some form or other. Okay, some of you, some of you live further afield. Um, so, but one of the things that I know is, as a teacher, having taught there for 20 years, um, more than that now, um, one of the draws to coming to practice at Spirit Rock is not the buildings, it's not the teachers, it's not the practice, it's the land, it's the, it's the, it's the nature that's there. And of course, all those other things are helpful too. Um, but the, the, you know, I hear this a lot when I'm working with, with, with yogis, students there, how much the land has been supporting and nourishing their heart particularly. How the, how the hearts touched, you know, these beautiful wild turkeys that roam around, very eccentric, very beautiful, you know, just walk in and out of different rooms and um, beautiful. You know, people talk about how, you know, they've fallen in love with it, the turkeys. There's, um, every year, there's uh, nests of swallows that, that uh, nest um, in a particular place in the courtyard by the Dharma Hall. And some of you might be familiar with those nests. They come every spring, they'll be there in a few months. And they'll build these spit nests. Of... And, they're inc- and, they're, and you, they, they, the nests aren't very big, so as spring moves on, we can see the young ones. And there's a, they're, they're shivering with either with cold or with hunger or with hope for the parents returning and it brings incredible tenderness tenderness like we see the fragility the sweetness of life or maybe walking in the woods and we come across a deer or a fawn or a mother doe licking its fawn or tending to them in some ways and you know we feel that sense of delight it's the joy of seeing um, an owl cross our path, or seeing the sunlit, the sunset, you know, light up the sky. And I was teaching there recently, and um, we were—I was there during um, uh, what they call atmospheric rivers, where there's just this tremendous amount of rain. We had, I mean, on the mountain next to, nearby, it was 16 inches of rain in in, in a day. A lot of rain a lot of flooding storms and it was i was actually giving the dharma talk and i just said the word buddha and the lights went out the power went out and everything went out for about a day so i had to give the rest of the dharma talk in the dark which was very cool with a little flashlight i looked a little ghoulish i have to say but it was fun giving the 
talk in the dark. But the, the point of that is, you know, nature also teaches us right, about uncertainty and how to find steadiness. So one of the things I like to emphasize in my nature teaching and retreats, and the one thing that we've, the key thing that we forget as human beings is we are of the earth, that we're not separate from the earth, right? The, the central teaching of the Buddhas is around dependent arising, around the nature of interconnection, that everything dependently arises out of conditions. And we too arise out of conditions, including innumerable conditions from the earth. We are the earth. We are of the earth. We're from the earth. We return to the earth. And yet we go about as if we're on the earth, somehow separate and different from it, which I think is part of our profound sense of existential alienation existential sense of separateness or loneliness. It's a beautiful uh, piece of writing from Meister Eckhart, who was a wonderful Christian mystic, often um, punished by the church, his writing suppressed and burnt. And um, clearly from this piece of writing, he was a nature mystic as well as a, a spiritual mystic. He said, when I was the stream, when I was the forest, when I was still the field, when I was every hoof, foot, fin, or wing, when I was the sky itself, no one ever asked me, did I have a purpose? No one ever wondered, was there anything I might need? For there was nothing I could not love. It was when I left all we once were that the agony began, the fear and questions came, and I wept and I wept, and tears I'd never known before. So I returned to the river, I returned to the mountains, I returned for the hand in marriage again. I begged, I begged to wed every object and every creature. When I was the stream, when I was the mountain, when I was every foot, hoof, fin, or wing, when I was not separate from this life, when I was intimately knowing myself as of this earth, there was nothing I did not need, there was nothing I did not love. So, what I'm speaking to tonight is the ways that the natural world teaches us about the heart, teaches us about connection, teaches us about love, teaches us about letting go, teaches us about compassion, teaches us very much about equanimity. So these four facets of the heart, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, um, that the Buddha spoke to, I'd say are very accessible and really uh, um, arise quite freely in nature. It's a great line from Mary Oliver um, where in a piece of writing she says, there is nothing in this world there is, how does it go? there's nothing in this world That if you pay attention to long enough, there's nothing in this world that doesn't fail to foster wonder 
and with wonder love. If there is, I haven't found it yet. Nothing in this world, if I pay attention to it long enough, doesn't fail to, doesn't cease to foster wonder and with wonder love. If there is, I haven't found it yet. So I love this teaching when we pay attention to whatever it is, could be a spider, could be a fly, could be a millipede, could be a cloud, could be a rock, could be the first shoots of grass growing here in the winter time. And we pay attention. Part of the gift of, of developing awareness is we develop a profound sensitivity and curiosity. And when we pay attention, as she's saying, we begin to see the wonder, the marvel, the mystery of life. From something as simple as, and I'm looking at a, a dead fly, actually a dead mosquito on my... Um, windowsill here. And just the mystery of wings that look like lace. The mystery of life and death. One of the things I think is very important when we go outside, particularly when we go away from human-centered activity and from other people, and we immerse ourselves in a natural environment. Well, there's a, there's a whole variety of things happen when we do that. But one of the things is we start to, um, we, we start to be less wrapped up in ourself. We often, being around other people seems to exacerbate the sense of self and self-consciousness and self-referencing and comparing, and you might have noticed that. When we go out into nature, park, even your garden, to the woods, we come into an environment that's not busy selfing, comparing, judging, criticizing. Anybody feel more accepted when you go outside, when you go into the woods, to the the the, the is the forest kind of like, nah, I don't really like what you're wearing. You need to get a new, you know, cooler set of boots. And now I think your hat's a little, you know. No, it's just, there's a, there's a sense of, of, of gracious welcoming. An invitation. And, and, and nature, one of the beautiful things about nature and this, this earth is it is as it is. And a lot of wisdom teachings about meeting things as they are, being with life as it is. And nature is profoundly is as it is. And so it, it's a great mirror for us in that way of what it means to be as we are. And what does it mean for you to let yourself be who you are, whatever that is. And then something in us relaxes because we're not trying to be somebody. We're not trying to prove ourselves to an oak tree. <laughs> we're not trying to look good for the rocks. We're not trying to be special or intelligent for the stream. We're just being. We're, 
its beingness brings out our own beingness. Its presence brings out our own presence. It's a beautiful poem from um, New Zealand poet uh, Fleur Adcock. And uh, she, she says this really beautifully. I'll read it because it, it's, it's, people love this poem. It's called Weathering. And she says, she writes, literally thin-skinned, I suppose, my face catches the wind off the snow line and flushes with the flush that will never wholly settle. Well, that was a metropolitan vanity, wanting to look young forever to pass. I was never a pre-Raphaelite beauty, nor anything but pretty enough to satisfy men who needed to be seen with a passable woman. But now I'm in love with a place which doesn't care how I look or if I'm happy Happy is how I look, and that is all. My hair will grow gray in any case. My nails chip and flake. My waist thicken. The years work all their usual changes. If my face is to be weather-beaten as well, that's little enough lost. A fair bargain for a year among the lakes and the fells. When simply to look out at the wind, out my window at the high pass makes me indifferent to mirrors and to what my soul may wear over its new complexion. So she's talking about that profound um, acceptance and naturalness and uncaring and just being herself. That nature is, is calling forth from her in, in a very beautiful way. So we can feel the freedom in her writing and the joy in that. I'm not caring, just letting her her face redden and her hair grow and, and, and the joy that comes from just being herself. And this is a profound teaching to be as we are, to be okay with who we are. You know, we live in these, we live in, in weird times for many reasons. One of the weird times, maybe it's good, it has some good in it, but is that where there's um, maybe it's more accentuated here and I live in the Bay Area in California, but we live in times of perpetual self-improvement, self-growth, self-help, self-development, actualization, and you know, 10 other names you can call it, right? And I'm, I'm not, it's not a bad thing, but it becomes a thing, it becomes a, uh, an obsession or becomes, um, um, you know, this great line from Lao Tzu that I like to quote, the most important thing to do is to be. All of that self-improvement often rubs us from being. Right? We, we get very busy doing, accomplishing, growing, changing, developing, and, you know, and there's a place for all of that. But what often gets missed, and this is, I think this is where the wisdom of Dharma comes in, is to profoundly be, to meet what is, to, and, and to be with what is, including our, ourselves and all of our beauty and vulnerability and tenderness and messiness and idiosyncrasy, just like an oak tree is incredibly wild and varied and idiosyncratic. They're not self-improving. They might be growing but they're not self-improving. They're being as they are. 
And so hopefully when you go outside, you feel at times a sense of, oh, right, I'm, I'm around beings where there's a sense of there, this is what is and it's enough. And I'm at home here. This is our home. The line from the poem Wild Geese, no matter who you are, the world offers itself to your imagination over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. It's the world, the nature, natural world is inviting us here just to be. And in that being, this can hopefully be a sense of relaxing. And in that relaxing, the heart opens when we're relaxed. Not when we're thinking we should be different, when we should be somebody else. So how does the world, how does the nature teach us about the heart? Let me come back to this theme. Well, it just so happens we're born in a beautiful, beautiful planet. I just watched the movie Dune, which is a lot of very uninhabitable planets. <laughs> and, um, you know, here we are, we live in a, in, a, in a relative paradise, not everywhere, not accessible to all peoples for sure, but we still live in a crazy, beautiful world. Even if you live in the city, you can see stars at times and moon and sunrise and sunset and storms and lightning and And so you may think for yourself, you may reflect, you know, how does nature teach you about love? Where does the natural world touch your heart? In what places is it easier for your heart to rest, to feel a sense of connection or intimacy or love or affection? So every morning I get up and I've been leading the sunrise meditations. Uh, every, I did for 18 months outside my window here. I jump out my office window and sit on the roof and guide an online sunrise meditation, which I know some of you come. And every morning I step out and I listen to the birds in different seasons, different birds, some of the sparrows have returned, the yellow-headed sparrows, and I don't quite track all the birds and all the songs and all the migration paths, but every morning I'm greeted by different songs, or even the squawk of blue jays and crows, and sometimes right now we have a great horned owl sings to us at night. And I just notice that sense of sweetness, and every time I see a bird, and then and the, the delicacy of their song touches me. And I go outside and I, this oak tree that I've sat with for years now outside my house, it's like this Buddha that sits with me. You know, or I sit with it, more like. Oh, I get to see sunrise. It's a beautiful thing to pay homage to the sunrise. Again, as Mary Oliver says, have you ever felt for anything such wild love as the way the sun 
every evening floats towards the horizon into the clouds or the sea or the rumpled hills and floats again every morning on the other side of the world like a red flower streaming upwards on its heavenly oils. Have you ever felt for anything such wild love as it reaches out, as it touches you, as you stand there empty-handed? What touches your heart? What allows your heart to sing? I taught a retreat uh, for my teacher training, my nature teacher training folks one year up in the foothills of the Sierras and we were uh, doing a sunrise meditation looking at the Sierra mountains and um, we were sitting in this uh, this uh, farmer's field and I'd forgotten that, they, that the, far, the farmer runs cattle there sometimes and uh, so we sat to meditate in the line along this dirt road, this dirt track, and um, and we were sitting there for a while waiting for the sun to come up, and then this herd of beautiful black cows thought came over to where we were sitting, and normally cows don't normally stumble across a bunch of people sitting cross-legged on the ground, eyes closed, still, not moving, not blinking, and so they were curious, and the, and there was a there was a herd of mothers and their calves and the, and the calves were super curious and they would come up literally about five feet from where we were sitting we saw we were about face to face you know we were eye level seeing their big black eyes and their moist noses and the steam coming out of their exhale and there's this profound um found moment of love of connection with these these tender beings you know that vulnerable lives don't live very long and here we are staring into the eyes of the mothers and, and the calves and um, it's hardened for the heart not to melt with love unless of course it's afraid or, or something and a couple of people from that retreat said I can never I can never eat meat again after that experience you look into the eyes of a living being that's beautiful and, and whole and precious and they became vegetarian. You know, it's like hard to eat, eat meat after that kind of experience. And of course, you know, it's not all daisies and sunrises. Nature is also challenging. It's harsh. It's brutal. It's there's, you know, we're living in more chaotic catastrophe times of floods and fires and droughts and harshness and severity of nature. And so it also asks us to stretch our heart. You know, to, can we find, we're, lying, we're going camping, can we feel radiating love, as the Buddha says, to the sounds outside our house, the sounds outside our tent, the sounds that are rustling in the woods, that might be a bear or a cougar or whatever. How do we stretch when the heart's contracted in fear? I remember I was teaching a retreat and I was on my way back to my room and I was going up this path to my cabin and there was uh, and there was a it was covered in long the path was overgrown with long grasses and the end of one of the long grasses right in the middle of the path was a big tick just waiting for a nice warm-blooded mammal to latch onto so it could get its food for the you know, it's blood for the next days. And 
And uh, I think I was teaching a meta retreat actually, and it was like, oh, this too, right? even ticks, even ticks that carry disease, sometimes fatal. Right? Can, can our hearts open to that? Right? I was teaching a retreat down in Baja and where we were camping on the beach. Um, my guide's very good at catching scorpions and there was all kinds of different scorpions around where I was um, sleeping. Not all kinds, I mean, I make it, not, not that many, but there was, he, he, was a, he caught a few. And um, it's like, oh, that too. Can our hearts love, just like, you know, loving someone who's gnarly and difficult and painful and can we love that which we're afraid of, that which we don't like, that which we don't want. And another dimension of sensing into love is also feeling the love that comes from nature, from the earth. This is from Robin Wall Kimmerer, writer of Braiding Sweetgrass and other beautiful works. She's a Native American, lives in New England. She writes, knowing that you love the earth changes you, activates you to defend and protect and celebrate. But when you feel that, that the earth loves you in return, that feeling transforms the relationship from a one-way street into a sacred bond. Knowing that the earth loves, knowing that you love the earth changes you, activates you to defend and protect and celebrate. But when you feel that the, the earth loves you in return, that feeling transforms the relationship from a one-way street into a sacred bond. So this is a very profound teaching and one that's really important as we bring our awareness practice, mindfulness practice in the outdoors and realize that we're always in a profound relationship. We're intimately interdependent all the time. We wouldn't exist for a moment if that was not true. We are intimately interconnected. We're intimately interdependent. Each inhale, each exhale, we can breathe out love and appreciation for the fact of all the trees, leaves, grasses, plankton that have been producing oxygen for billions of years allow us to breathe, allow us to live. Each inhale, each mundane little in-breath happens really out of the love of the plant kingdom, generating oxygen. So, so hold that in your attention. So there's a, I just taught a nature retreat the other day. I, I teach these local ones in the headlands um, in Marin here. And one of the things I try to emphasize is as we go outside, be aware that you're entering into relationship. We're always in relationship. We're in relationship with a whole ecosystem of beings and species. We tend to have the, we have the, you know, the, we'll say to somebody, oh, I'm going for a walk in the woods. I'm going to hike up that mountain. And it's very much a, a self-referenced perspective. And, it, and it's fine. It, it's describing one, one sort of facet of that activity. But, you know, as you walk through the woods or as you stroll through the park or as you sit on the beach, you are part of that ecosystem in that moment. You are part of that 
life. So the tree, the birds that live in the trees, and the trees that are feeling your vibration, and the snakes and the gophers that are sensing you, you're just another part of the, the forest moving through itself. And, once, and when I was writing my first book, Awake in the Wild, my friend sent me a story. I wish I had, do I have it? Um, sent me this beautiful story. I think I know where it is. Um, let me see if I can luckily find it. Here it is. She says, While doing a standing meditation with my eyes closed in the forest, I notice a tickle on my face. It traveled repeatedly from my mouth to my right eye and back again over a period of about 10 minutes. Trying to practice non-reactivity, mindfully, I breathe patiently, sensing many light legs busily walking back and forth across my face. After some time, a new strange sensation, sensation appeared on my mouth like it was being covered. Curiosity got the bed of me and I opened my eyes. A small spider had woven a delicate web over my mouth and secured its gossamer thread on an eyelash. I felt an exquisite intimacy with this being. I felt touched at being considered a part of nature suitable to make a home on. And yet at the same time, I knew I would shatter its home and our intimacy when I opened my mouth. What intimacy, delicacy, and destruction. The touch of grace as delicate as a spider's thread. What I love about that story is how she feels honored to be part of the forest and being suitable to, to, um, for the spider to make a home on. So I don't know how many of you are going to stand in the forest and let spiders weave spider's webs over you. That's not really the point, although it's kind of a fun exercise. I did actually have that happen to me. Uh, some years later, I had a spider weaving a web from my lip. I forget where else it was going to my nose, I think. And I didn't have quite the same amount of uh, equanimity as she did, but I did let it uh, do its thing for a few minutes and did notice it was harder to open my mouth. <laughs> so anyhow, so how does nature teach you about love? Maybe if you're inspired, you can there's something that calls to you. Maybe you can just share anything in the chat. How does nature teach you about love? How does it touch your heart in a way that allows it to, to open or to, to grow, to be touched? So the Buddha talked about cultivating metta, loving kindness, but also about cultivating compassion, right? The tenderness of heart when we meet the tenderness and the vulnerability of life. And again, we go outside, we see life is fragile. Life is vulnerable. I was snorkeling when I was on this retreat down in Baja. I'm not quite sure who came up with the dog-eat-dog -dog expression, but I always think it's be more accurate to say a fish-eat-fish -fish world. Because you go underwater and every fish is eating every other fish. And true in every ecosystem. But... Um, you know, there's a there's a tremendous fragility to life. Tremendous delicacy with you know, especially for mammals having to rear their young so slowly. I remember I was at Spirit Rock um, many years ago and I saw this little tiniest little mouse I've ever seen, maybe barely bigger than a thumbnail. Um that was pink and hairless and clearly just born just and just somehow eluded the nest 
and was just so incredibly vulnerable in its in its young tenderness. So I'm just taking a look here about how people feel love in nature, the acceptance of me as I am, not as I perceive myself. Nature shows me the perfect existence in just being. Noticing the life force fallen trees share with all of the organisms around them. Right, so maybe we feel tenderness for the for the animals, for the for the beings that we come across. And I was we did the kayaking retreat a few years ago down in Baja and we arrived at one of our camp spots and there was a pelican with a broken wing, bloody and you know, clearly unable to heal itself and we couldn't get close enough to be of any help. And it was just tremendously tender to to see life you know there's no there's no animal hospitals in the wild and an animal gets injured they tend to die or get eaten or both and um, or you walk out into the forest now and you see the stress of the forest and and, and the stress of the trees and the, the, the stress of the animals in the fires and in the floods we hear about the, the endangered species and, and you know species singing for their mate and there's no other mate because the species is becoming extinct. This is heartbreaking stories. Or you're seeing the the way wildlife is caught in nets and you know the turtles caught in caught in fishing lines and whales and dolphins and others caught up in, in all kinds of plastic and you know it just makes your heart bleed. But it's important, you know, that we bring our awareness, that we bring our attention to life, both its beauty and its how it touches our heart, how it touches, evokes compassion and care. So, where does compassion for you arise? Like when you go outside, how does nature teach you about compassion? How does it teach you about caring? How does it teach you about feeling the vulnerability? of life. And so when you're outside, particularly those of you who like to go outside, which I imagine is many of you, if not most of you, and just kind of be aware of, of the movement of the heart. Oh, how does love arise? How does compassion arise? Or is there ways that interfere with that? So people are writing about the, the gifts that nature brings us, how it brings us joy and healing, beauty, quiet, miracles. So the third quality the Buddha spoke to was the quality of joy, of mudita, of celebratory happiness. Right? And I think this is probably the most common experience we might feel when we go outside in our hearts. We feel touched with delight. We feel touched with joy, with wonder, with awe, with a sense of beauty and, 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 and uh, rapture. There's not, there's not a day goes by where I'm not awestruck by something. It could be a plant in my house. It could be a, a weed growing in my little garden. It could be a... Um, 
you know, often very ordinary. It could be the light on a bark. It could be the particular song of a bird. It could be the power of a storm. It could be the the pre-dawn light that I look at every morning before the sun starts rising. And I think this is also very important one that in these times that for most of us are challenging, they're uncertain, they're stressful, pandemic, there's you know all the different stresses that are happening. It's important that we go outside and know what nourishes your heart. How do you nourish, how do you take care of your heart by being in the conditions that support it to flourish? Whether that's being with loved ones, with friends, in nature, in meditation, community. One of my favorite poems from Miss Oliver, she talks about uh, in the poem Mindful, she says in the beginning, Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. And she's not talking about looking at a phone. She's not talking about scrolling on Twitter and (laughs) TikTok or whatever. Like there's a, there's a, you know, devices are interesting and helpful and useful and necessary. And there's a certain quality of joy or delight or rapture or connection that happens when we're away from our devices, when we're away from the comfort of our home, when we're outside in the elements. It's a poem I wrote about bees. I have a particular fondness of bees and their wondrous pollination skills, and it's called Bees in Paradise. This was a particularly spring, summer day, and there was a lot of um, uh, a lot of bees uh, nuzzling into the into the flowers. Today a bee came to visit, resting a while on my hand, her face so covered with pollen she looked blissful, having spent the day wading through fields of blossom. A new golden gown shed everywhere she went, yet every now and then she ceased her busyness to rub her delicate arms, to brush some pollen dust from her body, leaving a pile of sweetness tasting as delicate as she And then again she flew to the lives that turned their bright faces to the sun to swoon in embrace of petals, gathering fresh seeds of rapture. What simplicity, what joy, a life going from one smiling flower to another. Oh, that life were that simple, that sweet. Oh, to see your smiling face immersed in spring's bosom, covered in yellow happiness. Something as ordinary as beings pollinating. Or it could be the playfulness of your cats, like it is for mine. That's also, they are wild in their own way. So, you know, I teach a lot about joy, partly because I teach a lot about nature and being in nature, and it's such, and it's such, it's such a gift that we're given. You know, I'm very, I was very cognizant when the pandemic started last year. Here, at least in, in, in Northern California, it was a very beautiful spring, as I'm sure it was in every part of the world where spring was happening. And, and it was so interesting to be part of this, this sort of global process of stress and trauma and lockdown, and at the same time, 
nature was just abounding with beauty and with green and with lushness and with abundance and with fecundity and with blossoms and fragrance and and it behooves us to actually to make to make ourselves make, um, to avail ourselves of that And then lastly, the Buddha also spoke about the quality of equanimity, this quality of balance or steadiness in the midst of things, right? And nature is, I would say, the, the perennial teacher around how to be steady and easeful, balanced, grounded, centered, resilient in the midst of things. And just look at any landscape mountain coastline you know i was sitting on the ocean by the ocean the other day and just this relentless pounding of the ocean and just this steadiness of the rocks and the beach and the storms that plow through and again they're just the resilience of trees and mountains of landscapes i'm off to teach in the desert next week uh, on a nature teacher training and I'm going to be just north in the mountains in southern Baja, and it's very wild and harsh. And um, and we meditate under these tall ficus trees. There's these very beautiful, like sixty-foot ficus trees, and they they seem to only grow right on the cent right in the middle of these massive crags. There's these beautiful boulders about twenty, thirty, ten to thirty feet high. And these 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 ficus trees, their roots look like molten molten wood because they, they melt over the rock, and then they somehow find they split the rock and they find water source. And talk about resilient! And these beautiful, abundant trees growing in the, in the harsh desert, you know, in crags, out of rocks. So, excuse me, I have to let my, one of my felines in. Come on in. <laughs> you heard I was teaching about nature, so he thought, well, come on, I'm nature. <laughs> Anyhow, I shall wrap this talk up in a moment. He's obviously thinking it's time I stop talking. So, so how does nature teach you about resilience? How does it teach you about equanimity and steadiness? How do you find that balance in the midst of changing, uncertain times? Rosalind puts, when a goose becomes sick and needs to land, the entire flock land with it to help the sick goose, yes. Getting in my ocean, getting in the ocean up to my chin cures me of my feeling of being separate from nature. Yeah. So, so the point of me me sharing all this is really just to, as I often do, is just an invitation to be curious as you go outside, as you take your practice outside, whether it's in your garden, in the park, walking around your neighborhood getting further out into the woods, along the coastline, by stream. Notice how the, the natural world's 
constantly alluring your heart, constantly touching you, evoking a variety of emotions, including the tenderness and sadness of what's happening with our planet ecologically, holding both the joy and the sorrow, both the love and the grief. And that's all, all part of it. And so, yeah, so to, to be mindful of how we can, you know, really support ourselves and our practice by being mindful of the influence of environments on our mind and hearts and bodies and well-being. I know for myself, being outside, I found to be one of the most conducive for presence, awareness, embodiment, kindness, love, joy, equanimity, com compassion. <laughs> so, so friends, I hope this um, was helpful. Um, yeah, so anything else you wish to share? It's really nice to just see some of the, the sharings. It's an interesting line. Um, nature makes us curious in how it invokes so much in us humans and remains emotionless itself. And just like the moon, beautiful, you can feel love and devotion for the moon, and yet it remains at its perfect imperial distance, cool and present. So friends, nice to be with you. Nice to practice together, and um, hope these teachings were helpful. Um, if you're interested in any of my nature work, um, I do offer a lot of programs. Um, I offer local programs here in the Bay Area, and I offer residential retreats in New Mexico, and Colorado, and California, and Mexico, and um, so you can just find out about all that on my website. I believe Eliana has posted the link to my website for that. And I'm also just launching a mindfulness teacher training. It's a year-long program where I train people to teach mindfulness. It's happening in Berkeley, starts next fall. Um, again, you can find information about that on my website or at the Mindfulness Training Institute. Otherwise, thank you for your attention, your practice. Have a great evening and look forward to seeing you in the new year. Happy seasons. Greetings to you all. Much love. Yeah, thanks. You can unmute yourselves if you want and say hello or goodbye. I think, maybe not, I don't know. You could try it and find out. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.